Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you eager to hear your word. And Father, we think about 2,000 years ago how Jesus walked on a road and he called three men to follow him. And Lord, as he called them, he's calling many in this room. And I pray for uh, a sense of anticipation. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll humble our hearts to hear what we need to hear. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will give us the, the grace to respond accordingly. Father, we thank you for the clarity of this word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I was a, a missionary in Hungary, I had a chance to get to know a young man by the name of Mihai. He was a Hungarian speaker who actually hailed from the far western part of Ukraine and went to university where I was located. And Hungarians, if you got to know them, were a pretty melancholy people. But Mihai was kind of next level melancholy. Do I need to switch microphones? Okay, let's go ahead and change this out. That was stark, wasn't it? All right, is that better? All right, I can't be as mobile, but we'll get by. So anyway, Mihai is from the far uh, western part of Ukraine. He's a Hungarian speaker and and he was next level uh, melancholy. He, he struggled with suicidal thoughts continuously. He was very depressed, very sad. And I naturally, I kind of built a relationship with him and shared the gospel with him. And I was surprised by the, by the result. He told me that um, I actually did this a number of years ago. I was even baptized. Story goes, some Pentecostal missionaries shared the gospel with him. They saw that he was depressed. They offered him hope that if you become a, a Christian and get baptized, you will be happy. And it didn't work. And so when I shared the gospel with him, he was convinced that it wouldn't work. I tried it. And that's the end of the story. And as I, as I thought about that, I, I thought about what happens when when somebody thinks that they're rejecting the gospel, but they don't quite understand the real gospel. Right, we have a uh, kind of this in environment, at least during the time I grew up in, in the church, well, in the 90s, it, it was kind of like, come to Jesus, try Jesus. If you come to Jesus, he will give you hope, he'll give you peace, he'll, he'll give you rest, he'll meet your deepest needs. If you feel lonely, he will be your friend and put you in a community uh, there's another sense where if you follow Jesus, you can have your best life now. And it's all about how you will benefit. But when the benefit doesn't pay off, what takes place? There's a sense of disillusionment where I tried Jesus and it didn't work. So with that backdrop, it gives us an understanding of what Jesus is trying to do in Luke chapter 9. Look at verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nest. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another said, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now this seems like an unusual recruitment strategy, doesn't it? Jesus, you know, you're coming on a little bit strong. You know, baby steps, right? Let them do baby steps into the kingdom. If you ask too much from them, Jesus, you might push them away. But Jesus understands something about these inquirers, right? They, they have a sense where they want to follow Jesus. They're willing to express it, but, but, they, but they, they don't want to give everything to him, at least not right now. But first, let me do this. See, many people come to Christ, and it's not so much a commitment to Christ as much as a commitment to themselves, right? If I follow Christ, I will be made happy. If I follow Christ, I'll have purpose in life. If I follow Christ, I won't go to hell. It's not really a commitment to Christ for Christ's sake, but a commitment to Christ for their sake. There's a contrary commitment. And at some point in time, your commitment to Christ will be tested. Your commitment to Christ may lead to some form of persecution or, or suffering. Your commitment to Christ might lead to some meaningful sacrifice, perhaps breaking off some relationship. And when that day comes, what will be your commitment? I mean, Jesus says no one can serve two masters, right? He'll either hate one and love the other or love one or hate the other. Following Christ means you cannot have any contrary commitments. And Jesus lists three of those contrary commitments. They include the commitment to comfort, the commitment to kin, and the commitment to, to closure. You can have all your theology right, you can believe in the atonement, that Jesus died on the cross to take the wrath of God in our place. You can believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You can believe in the triune God of the Trinity. You can believe that there needs to be some come to Jesus moment. You can believe that there needs to be a commitment. But unless you understand what you're committing to, that Jesus is Lord, that means Lord of all, unless you give a complete surrender then you'll be on the outside looking in. And I look around and, you know, we have a mixed bag, right? We have people who are Christians and you know it. We have some people who are kind of on the cusp. You're not quite ready to do it. You've been entertaining this for a long time. Friend, if that's you, this message is for you and there's no accident while you're here. You were meant to hear this message. What is holding you back? What is your contrary commitment? It could be a, a contrary commitment to comfort. Look at verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now note the location. Where is he? He is on the road. He is traveling. And we know from verse 51, where is he traveling? To Jerusalem. 
This is in the autumn of his last season of year of ministry. In six months, he will be crucified. In turning his face towards Jerusalem, it's the beginning of the end. He is preparing himself and his disciples for a life without him. He is about to be betrayed. He's about to suffer. He's about to be crucified. It's getting dark. And he just tried to go through Samaria when the Samaritans rejected him. And here a person comes to him. Jesus doesn't ask for this kind of commitment. This person offers the commitment. He takes the initiative. Lord, right? That's promising. I will follow you. Also very promising. Wherever you go, baptize that guy. He gets it. He gets it. Further, we learn from the cross references, the the parallel account in, in Matthew, that this person was a scribe. He was learned. There's no scribes in the disciples. You have fishermen, you have tax collectors, you have a zealot. Wouldn't it be nice to have a scribe? Think about how that would just expand the reach of the ministry, right? You can reach the scribes and Pharisees with such a person. Why push this person away? Yet Jesus, being the perceptive evangelist, he has insight into the human heart. He's able to discern something about this person. This person wants to follow Jesus, and and it's in the wake of all the miracles that he has been doing. Perhaps he was there when he fed the 5,000. Perhaps he was one of the people who ate the bread that was multiplied or the fish that was supernaturally multiplied as well. Perhaps he saw all the miracles. Perhaps he had some deep conviction that this person is going someplace. I'm going to hitch my wagons to Jesus. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Well, that's great. He's going to go to Jerusalem to take the throne, and I'm going to be right there with him. Perhaps he's going to not only take the throne, but enter his palace. Jesus, I'm with you. But Jesus says, not so fast, my friend. You don't quite know what you're asking for. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, foxes and birds were plentiful in Palestine. Jesus would maybe point to the fox den, point to one of the holes, and these were holes that foxes would dig, and they would emerge at night and feast on frogs and rabbits and mice and other vermin. He might gesture to to maybe a tree where there's a nest or some cliff dwellings where the birds would make their homes. And he's basically saying, they live better than the Son of Man. And, And this nuance of the Son of Man is not the Son of Man coming back in glory. This is the Son of Man in Ezekiel, who is the suffering prophet. He says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, do you know why? It's not because he's fond of camping. It's because nobody would have him. Remember, he goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and what happened? They pushed him away and tried to kill him. His hometown didn't want him. He travels to the land of the Gerasenes. He expels the demons from this poor, broken man. And the people think, there's just too much power in you. Can you leave, please? The Gentiles don't want him. He tries to travel through Samaria. Samaritans find out that he's going to go to Mount to Jerusalem, and he's not going to honor their sacred mountain, Mount Gerizim. They don't want him. He's on his way to Jerusalem. 
Perhaps his own people would welcome him as the Messiah, but they will betray him. Right? The Roman governor will reject him. The priesthood would reject him. The crowds would reject him. Even one of his own disciples would reject him. Jesus is not wanted. He has no place to lay his head. And those who want to follow him need to remember that the servant is not greater than his master. John 15, 20, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. Right? Following Christ is wonderful, it's thrilling, but there is a cost. I read the other day that there's a popular trope in film where if somebody recites a Bible verse or quotes a Bible verse, guaranteed they're a villain. You have many people who have their own hero stories of self-discovery. These might be LGBTQ youth who discover their true identity, and they have this heroic, heroic quest of finding out who they are and expressing who they are contrary to the villainous machinations of their enemies, which are usually evangelical Christians. You have the academy and their search for truth and search for science that is often at odds with those pesky evangelicals. Right? Have you ever thought about how we have become the villain? If you live your life with integrity, you bring conviction, you're holier than thou, you're accused of being judgmental even though you try to be kind and gracious. It creates strain and stress in a lot of your families. And then there's even being a part of a church community. When one person suffers, we all suffer, right? When some person is sick, we all feel it. We are deeply concerned and, and we care for those people. There's a voluntary self-impoverishment that we give when we give to the, that we experience when we give to the Lord and when we serve other people in the body with their needs. Right? Following Christ does require, well, it doesn't require, requires faith in what he did, but it does lead to real sacrifice. Are you willing to forsake your comfort to follow me? See, Jesus wants to add some sobriety. I mean, you think about, let's say, a, a soldier. Somebody shows up at the recruitment office and they decide, I want to go into the military because I want to wear one of those awesome uniforms. I come from a long line of soldiers, and this would be a way of honoring my father and my grandfather. You know, the pay's pretty good, too. I can get a scholarship for college. And so I'm going to go ahead and join the army. But in the heat of battle, his commanding officer tells him to do something that might lead to him paying the ultimate sacrifice. And what does he do? If he's in it for himself, he will disobey. See, Jesus is not recruiting an army of deserters. He's not trying to sell people on this is what you get, but this is what you'll have to give. Now, why does he do that? I do a lot of premarital counseling, just so you know. And one of my hallmarks, and those of you who've experienced my premarital counseling know this, is that I probe and I probe and I probe until I find a potential conflict in the relationship, and then I just really dig in and twist right there. Now, do you know why I do that? I want to expose the conflict. 
I want them to, to know that having a marriage that honors Christ means that you both die to yourself. It's a long, slow grind. It's a long, slow obedience in the same direction. It's a way of preparing them. Right? The Christian life is a long, slow obedience in the same direction. It's not as glamorous as you might think. And the excitement of conversion won't sustain the tempted young man. The excitement of coming to Christ and having that mountaintop experience won't sustain the burdened pastor or the lonely mother. I mean, what you sign up for is following Christ, and it's not to experience your best life now. But it is to experience your best life in eternity. It is to embrace some promises like 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The idol of comfort in this life will betray you and blind you to the comfort that we will receive in the life to come. Our comfort is derivative of that future comfort. Sure, we suffer. Sure, we pay. But we have the hope that one day all things will work together for the good of those who love him, right? Following Christ will make you uncomfortable. It will make you uncomfortable. Don't allow the contrary commitment to comfort to blind you from the greater commitment to Christ. Secondly, beware of the contrary commitment to kin. This is where it gets interesting. To another said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So in the last case, a person approaches him. This time, Jesus approaches somebody else. You follow me. And the guy doesn't give a, a, a no. He says, well, but first, let me bury my father. Now, some people will contend that this is talking about his desire to go back and wait for his father to die so that he can get the inheritance. That's not really mentioned in the text. And I think it kind of robs the text of the power. See, Jesus is basically saying that even the best excuse is no excuse for disobedience. See, burying your father was a very important ritual in the ancient Near East. Remember when Joseph was on the court of Pharaoh and he found out that his father passed away? He asked for permission to leave the Pharaoh's side so that he can bury his father. And often this was done in different phases. Like you'd bury your father right away. A year later, you would remove his bones from the tomb and put him in an ossuary or something called a bone box, right? So we don't know how it worked, but there was some family obligation that this person sensed that he had to fulfill. Lord, I, I, I will follow you, but first let me bury my father. Would you please excuse me for the next week until I fulfill this obligation? Right? This is a pretty good excuse. Right? Normally, when we want to get out of an obligation, you try to excuse yourself. You give an excuse, and some are better than others. 
I remember a young man who I was mentoring during my college days at, at, at my old church, not Ryan, don't worry, I was really excited about asking this one girl out, but she said, no, I can't do it that Saturday night because that's the night I need to dedicate to writing my paper that's due a month from now. And sadly, my young mentee believed her. Sorry, brother, that's, that's actually a no. Right, that was a bad excuse. This is a good excuse. This is about my family. You know, I love to come to church sometime, but, you know, I work really hard, work long hours. Sunday's the one day I can spend with my family. Right, that sounds pretty good. You throw family on something, you got a good excuse. And Jesus is going to say, yeah, you're right, you got to spend time with your family. You know what, when you're done with your family, I'll be around, but take care of your family first. Is that what he says? He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Whoa, you mean I can't go bury? No, you leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, you proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, clearly, the dead can't bury their own dead. Let's talk about the spiritually dead, those who are not following him. Clearly, this person comes from a family where they are not following him. He's saying, leave the spiritually dead to bury the dead. You see, there is nothing that that man can do to truly honor his father because his father is dead. I mean, when you look at the funeral industry, did you know it is a $20 billion a year industry? And some of the expenses that you can have, that you can use for, for funerals are, are just ridiculous. Like I was, you know, naturally for sermon researching purposes, I was looking up funeral items and caskets, and, and this is what I found. They, there's a casket with a painting of Michelangelo's The Last Supper, so that when you close the coffin, that dead body can look at that Last Supper forever. There's, there's another one where there's eight picture frames where you can put family pictures on the inside of the casket. Another one where you have different drawers and you can put little tokens and other things to bury it with your father or your mother. My favorite was a, a coffin that looked like a, a giant Twix wrapper, right? So you can lay your, your son, daughter, or whoever into eternal rest in a, in a golden red letter Twix coffin. But you know what? Those people are, are dead. They're dead. Now, there is a place where you do want to safely bury the body, right? There is a place where we treat human burial different from animal burial because they're made in the image of God. There is a sense where we understand the reality of the resurrection. But spiritually dead people can take care of all that. There is an urgency to what Jesus is, is saying here. Your obligation to me is more important than your obligation to your deceased father. Let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. Don't allow a contrary commitment to Ken to supersede your commitment to me. So how does this work out? A couple years ago, I got a Christmas letter from some good friends of our family. They, um, this was the, the born-again Christian family I knew growing up. 
When I became a, a Christian, no one was more excited than them. They supported me when I went on various missions trips. They supported me when I went to Hungary. They're always very encouraging and rooting me on in my walk with the Lord. But this letter disclosed some big changes in their life. They changed churches. They changed their theological trajectory. They are now gay-affirming. They believe that the gospel is inclusive to everyone, regardless of their sexual orientation, and they mention that their son married his husband. What just happened? Nate Phipps sent me an interesting article a couple weeks ago about a growing movement in Generation Z where where younger people are breaking up and breaking off contact and breaking off relationships with their parents. Told the story of one young lady who grew up in a conservative Christian home, came out as a lesbian. Her father did not support and give the affirmation, would challenge her on that. And so for her own sanity, she decided to end the relationship. And that's what many people are coached to do. Now, as I mentioned last week, we're not out there looking for enemies, but what happens when somebody declares themselves your enemy? What happens when that son or that sister or your parent tells you, you have to choose between your faith and your belief in the authority of God's word or your relationship with me? What do you do? What do you do? Well, Jesus makes it very clear what's going to happen when you follow Christ. Luke 12, 52 through 54, for from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Following Christ creates conflict. So what do you do when someone declares themselves your enemy in the terms of surrender? If you want to keep the relationship with me, you must affirm me or do something contrary to your conscience. Jesus says, it's not a discussion. You follow me. Well, what do you get? Well, you may lose your family here and now, but in the future, Luke 18, 29 through 30, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. When people reject Christ, they might reject you. The husband may leave because his wife just turned into a Jesus freak. The son may not want to have anything to do with you because of your standard and your stance on, on holiness. What do you do? Your commitment to Christ must supersede all other contrary commitments. Finally, there's a contrary commitment to closure. Yet another, verse 61, said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So this follower says, Jesus, Lord, I will follow you. But first, I would just like to say goodbye to my family. I mean, does, that sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? 
You go back to the Old Testament. Elisha is plowing the field and Elijah approaches him and says, you follow me. And Elisha says, well, let me say goodbye to my family. And he does. They have a farewell feast. And then he follows Elijah. Now, Jesus says, you don't even get to do that. You must follow me right away. You see, it's not about following Jesus on your timetable. It's about following Jesus on his timetable. And Jesus knows that this man cannot walk. He must follow Jesus right now. Now, it is true that sometimes there is, you know, there is this desire to bring closure to a relationship, right? If one of your parents was dying, you'd want to be there to bring closure to the relationship. If your, your son was going to be deployed to the military, you'd want to have closure and, and give a proper goodbye. That's good and right, but not in this case. Jesus says, you must obey me right now. You mean I can't say goodbye to my family? No. What are you going to do? See, a lot of times closure masquerades as something else, as a longing for the past. Remember the story of Lot? Some angels warned him that God is going to judge this wicked city of Sodom. Get out now. Take your wife and whoever will come with you. So he takes his wife, he takes his daughters, and as fire is raining down, he's told specifically, do not look back. And Lot's wife looks back and is judged immediately. Why was she judged? She had a longing for the life that she was leaving. Maybe she wanted a sense of closure. I had a friend of mine who's a wonderful Christian man now. But when he shared his testimony, he was in a loveless marriage, partially his fault because he was having a long-term affair. His wife knew about it. He knew about it, but he kept the arrangement. And one day while he was watering his plants in his garden, he was struck with conviction about how wrong this is. He was moved by the faith of his wife to become a Christian, to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. He was going to turn over a new leaf, and he told his wife what happened. But then he asked if he could maybe talk to his mistress, because he was with her for a long time. He cared about her. He owed it to her to maybe have one final conversation. Maybe it'd be a chance to witness to her. Do you think the wife was okay with that? You see, you go back, there's a temptation never to return. In Judges 19, it tells the story of a concubine who, who left her Levite husband, or whatever arrangement that was, at the time of the judges. She went back to her parents' house, and the Levite found her, reconciled the relationship, and he tried to leave. And in this interchange back and forth, you read in Judges 19, 4, and his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained there 
with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they rose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he arose early in the morning to depart, and the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them, right? The guy can't leave because a party keeps on going. This farewell feast was being leveraged as a chance to retain and keep him. And Jesus is saying, you go back, there's no guarantee you're going to return. You want to say farewell to your father? No, you need to go right now. See, so often I have shared the gospel with people, explained it to people, and there's almost this this crisis point. Okay, they, they know Jesus rose from the dead. They know the authority of God's word. They know that when Jesus died on the cross, he took the wrath of God, that he is our substitute. They know that Jesus is the only way to heaven, right? No one goes to the Father but through Jesus. They know all of that stuff. They are convicted of it. They, they're troubled by it. But when they come to the cliff of commitment, Pastor Dave, I, I want to follow Christ, but my wife is really resistant. Let me try to bring her along first. Maybe go to a church that she would like. And then maybe I'll take that step. You know, Pastor Dave, I, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm at a point in my career where I really need to be working on Sundays. Pastor Dave, I'm in a relationship And I know it's immoral, I know it's wrong. But if I break it off, that person may not come to Christ. Augustine was one of the great minds that ever lived. Probably the most influential theologian in all of Christendom. But he was a literal hellion before he became a Christian. He was living in an immoral relationship breaking the heart of his Christian mother, Monica. And he was convinced that Monica's faith was true, that it was real, but at the same time, he is living with his lover. And so he prayed this prayer. Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Lord, make me holy, but not yet. Right, that is the, the prayer of, of many people who, who say, I will follow you, but first. I believe this, but first. I want to be holy, but first. And that might be some of you. You're sitting here, you're thinking of all places to be, this is where I am. And I don't know what your but first is. It might be. There's an area of your life, there's an area of sin that you know you need to come clean on. You need to confess to somebody. And not just anybody, but the person who's going to hold you accountable and help you put that sin to death. 
It might be some secret from your past that you're afraid of bringing up. It might be some form of commitment, commitment to a, a church. You, you just know for a long time, this is what I need to do. Maybe you need to be baptized. It might be some relationship that you are holding on to that you know is wrong, but you're unwilling to let it go. Okay, I don't know what the situation, the Spirit does, and hopefully he's working on you right now. Now, if you are praying, Lord, make me holy, but not yet, I have three things to say to you. Number one, delaying obedience will harden your heart. Delaying obedience will harden your heart. When you say, Lord, make me holy, but not yet, you agree with all the truth, you just don't want to admit to it. Hebrews 3, 7 through 8 tells us, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, right? A decision to delay is a decision to disobey. If you're convicted, you know it's right, you know it's true, yes, I know, I know, I know, I know, but then you say no, you are training your heart to resist the call of God. And what makes you think that when you consistently train your heart to defy the call of God, it will be soft in the future? If you resist it now, you are hardening your heart. Don't think that there'll be another opportunity. Secondly, if you say, Lord, make me holy, but not yet, and you live that out, there will be an extra measure of judgment. There will be an extra measure of judgment. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his great sermons to the almost persuaded, where he talks about King Agrippa, who was almost persuaded to become a Christian, but decides not to. He warns the people who are almost persuaded with this. The man who is almost persuaded to be honest and yet deliberately becomes a thief is a rogue in grain. The murderer who almost saves his victim's life in the moment of passion, pausing, almost persuaded to forego revenge, and after all, deliberately kills his enemy, deserves death beyond all others. The man who is deliberately an enemy of Christ, presumptuously rejects the offer of peace, in calm moments puts from him the precious blood, who is almost persuaded and yet by desperate effort overcomes his conscience. Such a man shall go down to the pit with a millstone around his neck, and it shall sink him to the lowest hell. You almost persuaded ones, I pray you look at this and tremble. Do you know what makes some sin worse than others? It's knowledge. To much is given, much is required. For those who are almost persuaded, for those who say, Lord, make me holy, but not yet, and die in that state when they go to hell, there will be an endless sense of regret where I was this close and I pushed it away. Lord, make me holy, but not yet. Thirdly, it buys a lie. When you say, make me holy, not yet, you believe that the pleasure of sin outweighs the joy of following Christ. You see the holiness that the Lord is offering you as a curse and a burden. But we know from Scripture that the commands of the Lord are not, are not burdensome. They are meant to be an expression of kindness. Jesus says in John 15, 10 through 11, 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Right there, meant to protect you, right? You parents know this. When you give your commands, uh, your kids a command, like don't play in the street, that's meant to protect them. It's an expression of love. Jesus came for your joy. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all things, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right, if Jesus loved you enough to die on the cross for you and he gives you this command, why do you think he's doing that? It's an expression of his love. And to fully experience his love, it must be met with absolute faith, trust, and commitment. And when you do that, God is on your side. You're no longer his enemy, but you are his child. You can claim promises like Romans 8, 28, and we know for, the, for those who, who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You know, one thing I have noticed over and over about those people who deny Christ is they have no hope. They have no sense of transcendence. They have no, no sense of purpose. They have no guarantee that things are going to work out for their good in the end, right? Life is vanity. Chasing after the wind. See, what Jesus is calling you to is he's calling you to a better and greater kingdom. And so here's the question. Do you believe him? It's one thing to, to say, I believe that Jesus is Lord. It's another thing to live like he is Lord. So you can tell yourself you have the right theology, but you're lacking the commitment. But any theology that does not lead to an absolute commitment to Christ is a wrong theology. Following Jesus as Lord is not a casual experience. Jesus is calling you away from the world. To be committed to something other than Jesus is to be committed to some element or aspect of the world. It is to be committed to some, some facet of the domain of darkness, which is under the rule of Satan. For him to be partial Lord is to not be the Lord at all. So friend, what keeps you from coming to Christ? If you really believe it, why delay? All contrary commitments are tools of Satan being used in this moment to keep you from doing the right thing. Jesus is a better master. He's calling you to a greater reality, but it means you have to surrender. Don't delay it. Don't say, make me holy, but not yet. Don't say, but first, do it now. Resolve in your heart right now. I surrender. I give up. I will follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and I pray for those who are, who are tormented right now. They know what they have to do. They know what you're calling them to do. Holy Spirit, I pray for a penetrating work right now, that you will not leave them alone until they yield, and that this will be the day of salvation. 
Further prayer goes from make me holy but not yet to make me holy. We pray that as a church we will push people and encourage people towards that end that the gospel that we proclaim will bear fruit and that there will be change and transformation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.